Welcome to the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Get in on the conversation. Call 1-877-669-1292. And I'm Howie Silbiger. This is the Howie Silbiger Show right here on the True Talk Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here and for joining me tonight. I do appreciate you uh, you taking time out of your busy day to come here and join me uh, as uh, as we share some some interesting thoughts and uh, uh, and uh, look at some of the happenings of the day. You can always download the True Talk Radio Network app. Go to your favorite app store. The app is there, and you can download it. I often talk about uh, Jewish capitulation. I always talk. I often talk about the um, the way our our organizations and the way we are abandoned as Jews by some of our Jewish organizations. Uh, I did a I did a show last night where we talked how Federation uh, really doesn't want to stop anti-Jewism. Uh, they just kind of do what they what they do, and uh, the community supports them. I, um, you know, you, you kind of put things into perspective a little bit when you encounter a story that shows you that, that not all Jews, not every single Jew believes in this uh, secular pluralism. Not every single Jew believes that we should be sitting ducks. And sometimes, sometimes there are people who are put into situations that have to be, um, that, that they have to take action, that they have to do something in order to, uh, in order to save themselves and to stay alive. I went to a Shiva house uh, tonight. And the Shiva house I went to uh, was for a man named Sidney Itzkowitz. Now, Sidney Itzkowitz wrote a book a couple of years ago called From Mirror to Montreal, where he outlined his, his family story. And uh, it is a horrific story. And if you get your hands on a book, it's, a, it's, it's surely a great read. Uh, I, I believe it's available at, on the university. You could just Google it. I believe it's available online. But if, uh, if, if you could get it, if you get a copy of it, get, if you could be able to look at it, his story is fascinating. The Global Mail ran a, uh, an article about him. I want to share the article with you. Uh, and, then, and then I'll give you a couple of my thoughts because Jewish heroism, we, we don't often recognize Jewish heroes while they're alive, we tend to recognize people when they, when, after they've passed away. So uh, Sidney Itzkowitz died earlier this week, and we, uh, we, tend to, we tend to not recognize these people, the people who put their lives on the line to help fight the Nazis, the people who put their lives on the line to ensure that they survived, and in the process also ensuring that Judaism survived, who came after the war, who built businesses, built families, these people didn't get enough credit while they were alive. And, uh, and we tend to recognize them after they died. So uh, this show is dedicated in his memory. And, um, and let's, let's take a look at his story as, as told by the Globe and Mail. Uh, the, the article was written by, by Tu Thang Ha, and it was published yesterday in the Globe and Mail. Uh, there were five Jewish brothers in German-occupied Poland. They, invaded, they evaded the death squads that murdered their parents. They took part in a mass escape from a ghetto in a medieval castle. 
They joined partisan units operating behind enemy lines in the forests and marshes of Belarus. Three of the brothers survived the war and eventually settled in Montreal, where they became successful entrepreneurs. Now the last of them has passed away. Sidney Iskowitz died on Friday in Montreal. He was 96 years old. Quote, you were witness to such evil at such a young age, but you did overcome it all and managed to build such an amazing and successful life. His daughter, Selena, said at the eulogy uh, at the funeral service on Sunday. Mr. Itzkowitz and his brothers, Label, Zoltek, uh, Itzchak, and Chaim, were part of a chapter of the Second World War that has only recently been more widely recognized. The Jewish resistors who evaded the Nazi genocidal juggernaut and joined guerrilla groups fighting in the rear areas of the Eastern Front. Mr. Itzkowitz's story is told through his memoir, From Mir to Montreal, posted on a University of Oregon history site, and in a post-war video testimonies that the surviving brothers gave to the Shoah Foundation. He was born Simcha Itzkowitz on January 3rd, 1927, the fourth of five boys. Their parents, David and Mushke, ran a barber shop, a butcher shop, excuse me, in the small town of Mir in southwest of Minsk. In that time, Mir was a Polish town and part of the country that was overrun by the Red Army when the Second World War started in 1939. The Soviet authorities nationalized private businesses, so the Itzkowitzes turned to farming. Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June of 1941 and reached Mir within five days. The Germans executed the town's Jewish leaders and enlisted collaborators into a force of police auxiliaries. A neighbor informed the Germans that the Itzkowitzes owned a horse, so it was confiscated. The family still had a cow and another neighbor if she could keep it for, uh, and asked another neighbor if she could keep it for them in return for half the milk. She agreed and added that she would she could hide them if if there was trouble. She would hide them. In the morning of November 9th, the police ordered all the town's Jews to gather in the main square. The Eskovitz were knocked on the door of the woman who had their cow, but she didn't answer. Semcha was 14, Chaim was 11. They both went back home and hid in the attic. Police collaborators searched the house but did not find them. As the men were leaving, Simcha heard his father saying that he would go, he would go with them. Gunshots rang out. We heard our father groaning, then silence. Their mother was also amongst the 1,500 to 2,000 people murdered that day. Jews were shot all over town, a prosecutor said in 1997 during a war crimes trial in Britain against the former police chief of Mir. The five brothers were among the 850 survivors who were eventually rounded up and held in a ghetto set up in a rundown castle on the outskirts of town. One day, eldest brother Label told Simcha something in strict confidence. The police chief's Polish interpreter, Oswald Rufenstein, was actually a fugitive Jew who was helping the ghettos underground. In the summer of 1942, Mr. Rufusein alerted them that he had overheard the Germans making plans to massacre the ghetto survivors on August 13th. Simcha was among a group who tried to run away on August 9th. He tied a knapsack packed with food to a rope and was lowering it from the castle's second story when he heard a commotion. Other prisoners were trying to stop them, fearing German retaliation. The underground eventually decided to stage a mass breakout on the night of August 10th. Mr. Rufusen created a diversion that sent the police out of town to chase partisans. Meanwhile, about 200 Jews, including the five brothers, escaped after cutting the iron bars over the castle windows. The brothers took refuge at a farm of a family friend. They built a bunker in the forest where they sheltered through the winter, getting food from another farmer. In the spring, they had to flee to a swamp ahead of a German raid. 
Mr. Itzkovitz remembered being exhausted, wet, and freezing cold while hiding in the marshes. In May 1943, Itzak managed to get a rifle, which enabled the brothers to join a partisan union, uh, unit. But shortly afterwards, Label was killed in a clash with anti-Semitic partisans. Simcha, who was 16 by then, became a member of a workshop that converted unexplo- unexploded ordinances into makeshift explosive devices that the partisans used to blow up railway tracks. That summer, the Germans launched an anti-insurgatory offensive. Simcha became separated from his group, and they retreated. The Germans opened fire on us with machine guns, and the man next to me was hit. He asked that I please shoot him, but the teenager felt bullets grazing his legs, so he kept running. He wandered in the forest, living off wild berries and water from puddles. At one point, he came upon a burning village. Later, he found a wounded partisan officer and eventually rejoined his unit. In 1944, the Soviets liberated the area. Zodek and Itzhak enlisted in the Red Army, but on their way to the front, a mine killed Itzhak and wounded Zodek. Simcha was due to start military training. However, quote, I decided that because the two of my brothers had been killed and another badly wounded, I must do everything possible to ensure that our family not wiped out completely. He applied to study auto mechanics at a trade school in the Ural Mountains. But when he got there after a month-long journey, he found a hostile locals and no trade school. He moved to Canada in 1949, reuniting with Chaim, who had settled in Montreal, who were later joined by Zotek. Having immigrated to at different times, they had anglicized their names in a different way. Simcha became Sidney Itzkovitz, Chaim spelled his name Hyman, while Zodek became Jack. The three opened a furniture store. Mr. Itzkovitz also ran a mattress company. They visited Mr. Rufusen, who had survived the war, converted to Catholicism, and lived in a monastery in Israel. In 2003, Mr. Itzkovitz learned that the federal government was trying to deport Montrealer Walter Obedensky, who is alleged to have been the police collaborator who took part in the massacre in Mir. Quote, I lay awake at night thinking about what I could do to see that the man was brought to justice, Mr. Eskowitz told the Globe and Mail at the time. Upset that the case had been dragged on for so long, he hired a private investigator. But the detective reported that the suspect had died before the deportation process could be completed. In his memoir, Mr. Eskowitz attributed his wartime survival to luck. Quote, I did not really believe I would survive, but I never gave up fighting. He was diagnosed with cancer at 80. He remained an indomitable spirit, his daughter Selena recalled. I, I, he said, I've been through worse things in my life as he underwent chemotherapy. Mr. Isakovitz was predeceased by his wife just four months ago, Bella. He leaves behind three children, Miriam, Selena, and Sheldon, five grandchildren and one great-grandson. Um, Mr. Sidney Itzkovitz is the epitome. He is the epitome of a hero. Here is a kid, and he was really a kid. He was 12, 13, 14, and 16 years old during the war. He was a kid who decided that he wasn't going to lay down and allow himself to be killed. He wasn't going to stand back and allow these Jew haters to dictate how his life is going to live itself out. But he fought. He joined the partisans. He fought with the partisans. He didn't say, Oh, let the army take care of it. Let the organizations take care of it. Let the Jewish leadership take care of it. No. No, he stood up and he fought for himself. He fought for his people. He fought against tyranny and he survived it. And He lived to tell the story. He made sure that once he was, once he was safe, once he was living in Canada, once he emigrated out of the, out of the hellhole that was Europe, that he built a family that he had children, 
that his children had grandchildren, that his Jewish legacy lived on. This is, this is really an example that we should all take. This is an example that we should look at and we should understand. That is our responsibility to stand up and defend the community. It's our responsibility to be the ones to ensure that Judaism continues, that, that Jews survive, that the Jew haters don't win. It's time for us to join the partisan movement, the local new partisan movement, fighting against Jew hatred, fighting against assimilationists who want to take Judaism away, standing up, being counted. It's time we did that. I, I'm so happy I went to the Shiva house tonight because not only did I pay tribute to this amazing man who had an unbelievably amazing and hard life, a man who stood up and, and defended Judaism, fought Nazis, literally fought Nazis, who was ready to put himself forward to make sure a Nazi war criminal. Canada had a dismal record of prosecuting Nazi war criminals. They let Nazis live out their lives in Canada. The Canadian government is it's shameful that the Canadian government didn't do more to prosecute Nazi war criminals that fled to Canada. And there were a lot of them. Remember years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I was invited to meet the federal prosecutor, the Canadian federal prosecutor, who was in charge of Nazi war criminals in Canada. And uh, there was only four or five of us that went to meet with this guy. And I went to meet with him, and uh, I asked him a simple question. I said, if you know that there are so many war criminals in Canada, and we know that there were tons of them in Canada, there were tons of them in Brazil, tons of them in, Aust- in, uh, in Argentina. Why don't we do more to bring them to justice? Why is Jewish life always so cheap? Why is nobody willing to stick their neck out for the Jewish people? It's a question that, I, that I've asked for years, and it's a question that I haven't received an answer for. I don't understand why this is the case, why everybody... Uh, everybody just ignores the Jewish life is cheap. Jewish blood could just run down the streets. And nobody cares. We talk about diversity. We talk about acceptance. We talk about, uh, we talk about uh, one, one, one world for everybody. We, we have to accept every crazy fallacy, every fake whatever that comes up. We have to accept it or we get canceled. But when it comes to the Jewish community, nobody cares. Nobody would stick their neck out to save a Jew. So when you, when, 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 you, when you put it into context and you think that, that this guy, this little boy, survived, he watched his parents, he heard his parents getting killed, yet he somehow mastered, mustered the, the energy and the fervor to go out and to, to, to survive and to, and to fight and, to, and, to, and to, to, to live. He somehow mastered the courage to... Join the partisans and fight the Nazis. I'm not so sure there would be too many kids today that would have the, the wherewithal to do that. It's a very sad statement. We're raising very soft children. But we're losing that generation. That generation is going. It's unfortunate, but as time marches on, that generation disappears. And the witnesses to the Holocaust... Now the child witnesses, the child, children who survived the Holocaust, are all in their 90s, and they're all, they're all starting to go. And very soon, in not so distant future, 
there are going to be no more Holocaust survivors left. A couple of months ago, I was in a uh, thrift shop. I don't often shop in thrift shops. I, I happen to be walking by a thrift shop when I saw a book being displayed uh, in their book section. It was, it was prominently being displayed. And I took a look at the book. Uh, it, it, it said, The Real Himmler. So Heimlich Himmler was uh, Adolf, Eichmann's, Adolf Eichmann's right-hand man. And the book said, The Real Himmler. And I stopped and I took, I, I went into the thrift shop and I took a look at the book. And it was written by David Irving, who's a notable Holocaust denier, a man who claims that the Holocaust is a Jewish myth made up and, and created so Jews could have sympathy for the rest of the world and that Jews could create the, uh, the state of Israel based on the sympathy that the world had for, for their fake massacre. He claims that the, he claims that the, um, that the gas chambers were fake. The man is a nutcase. But this book, uh, it's over a thousand pages, was being prominently displayed in a thrift shop and for sale. So in, in an effort not to have this garbage disseminated, I, bought, I purchased the book. I bought the book. It's still sitting here in my house. I, I, I don't know what to do with it. It's still sitting at home. I'm not sure what to do with it, but uh, the book is lying there. And, um, and, but I just took it out of circulation because I didn't want anybody else to read it. Now with the with the Holocaust, with the Holocaust survivors all dying off and and coming to a point where there are going to be no more Holocaust survivors to tell their stories, it is so important, inherently, unbelievably important, that we enhance Holocaust education. Now, I'm not saying enhance the education that we were murdered in gas chambers and our bodies were piled up. That's not the education that we should be enhancing. We should be telling stories like the story of Sidney Itzkowitz. We should be telling stories of strong Jews who fought and helped the Jewish community win the war. We took great losses, that's true. Unbelievable losses, heartbreaking losses, crazy, unbelievable, heartbreaking losses. But at the end of the day, we won. At the end of the day, the Jews are still here, the Nazis aren't. We were the victors of the war. We were gravely injured, but we were victors. We won. And we have to start telling the story of the, Jew, of the Jews who, who helped us win, the Jews who fought, the Jews who put their lives on the line so that we could be here today talking, and I could be sitting here today telling you about, uh, about this, this Jewish national hero. Their names should be inscribed in, in, in the history books. These, these people should be remembered. And all of them, all the survivors should be remembered. The suffering should be remembered. But also the way they lived before the war and the way they built communities after the war. It's extremely important to show that you could be at rock bottom. You could be at the lowest point in your life but there's always a chance. There's always hope. It's such an inspirational story. The story of the Jewish people is so inspirational. It's just a shame that we don't, we don't share it often enough. It's a shame that we have children, or we have young ones who are running away from Judaism and don't understand how difficult it is to be a Jew, how, how our ancestors put their lives on the line and lost their lives in many cases, because they were Jews, 
Every Jew that steps away from Judaism, every Jew that turns their back, every Jew that intermarries, every Jew that, that, that decides that Judaism is not for them or doesn't believe in Judaism. It's one more nail in the coffin of, of, Judea, of the Jewish people. It, rabbi Lau, the, chief rabbi, the former chief rabbi of Israel, in a speech uh, maybe six, seven years ago, did the numbers, and he, he said statistically more Jews have been destroyed, more Jewish life has been destroyed since the Holocaust than during the Holocaust. And it was voluntary. Jews choosing to walk away from the religion. We've got to stop it. We've got to resell the religion to our young. We have to encourage them to to, to be focused and to, to, to enjoy the religion and to like the religion and to, and to fall in love with it. It's the only way the Jewish people are going to survive. We have to thank people and remember people like Sidney Itzkowitz who put their lives on the lines to fight the Nazis. We have to remember their stories. We also have to remember that it's our responsibility to be Sidney Itzkowitz's and to fight against the Nazis of today, assimilation, Jew haters, and everything in between. I'm Howie Silberger. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you again next time.